I know that is a desire in my own heart that I would draw nearer to God. How many of you would say that you're fine, you're exactly where you think you ought to be in your Christian life, you're as near to God as He wants you to be? How many of you are there this morning? Nobody, no takers. So good to see a, a full house this morning. Glad you're all out today. I've been praying a lot for um, not only for this message, but the Lord's put some things in my heart tonight. I would encourage you to come back. I'm going to have a sort of a visit with the church, share some things the Lord's done in my heart while my wife and I were away at a conference and and uh, just share some things. But one of the things that uh, is so burning in my heart is that God would send a revival and that God would revive my own heart. My spirit, I pray that God would revive all of your hearts and your homes and your marriages and your children. Um, how many of you would agree, spiritually speaking, there's something wrong these days? We need revival. And um, I think God said it best, judgment must begin in the house of God. You know, we can point to the White House and we point to Congress and point to different radical groups around the world. But judgment must begin in the house of God and with us. And so I pray that God would stir our hearts today, that God would help us. And, um, and uh, I don't know how long I'll do this, but for the next several weeks, we'll, we'll be talking on the topic of revival. Revival is kind of one of those um, ambiguous terms we throw around. What does it mean? How do we define it? We talk about it, and we can talk about it. We can point to revivals of days gone by. But you know what? I don't know about you. I'm tired about reading about revivals and reading biographies and those kinds of things. I want to see it in my day. I want to see God do something. And um, so if you have your Bibles there in, in Psalm 85, we're going to read one verse, but we're going to eventually go through the whole psalm. Look at verse number 6. The prayer of this psalmist for his people was this. Um, Wilt thou not revive us again? that thy people may rejoice in thee. Wilt thou not revive us again, that the people may rejoice in thee? Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, we need you. We need you today more than ever. I pray, Lord, that you'd stir our hearts. I believe a key part of this revival is simply desiring you getting back to that place where we just want to be near to our God. Lord, we've been so blessed as a people where we've gotten complacent. We've pursued passions and enjoyments and missed the weightier things of life so easily. Would you revive us, Lord? Would you send a revival to my heart, to the hearts of these dear people here? Would you do a mighty work? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, so many in America today would say that, uh, would give this assessment, and I think rightly so, that America's on her way to hell. Uh, we might hear this phrase, going to hell in a handbasket. Right? We look around, there's just sort of immorality and just destruction and just horrible things. Everywhere we want to slice this thing, uh, it seems to be falling apart. And, and we kind of look at it, and it's interesting is the Bible tells us in a, um, uh, that uh, um, uh, uh, the wicked shall be turned to hell and all the nations that forget God. You know, America wants a new God. 
I would say this, uh, Brother McGovern mentioned it uh, last week, and, uh, that, uh, that we are in a post-Christian society. We're a nation that was founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. You can read all the letters of the founders. You can even start with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Uh, uh, there's an organization, Freedom From Religion Foundation, and they say there's no reference to God in the Constitution. I don't know what they thought Almighty meant or Providence with a capital P, or, or uh, um, you know, Creator with a capital C. You know, all men are endued by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, right? Uh, where did that come from? Um, so anyways, however you want to slice that thing, but, uh, but the reality is this, that the nations that forget God, forget God, there's a problem. You know, uh, and what's interesting about that, though, there are more churches and more larger churches today than any other time in history. Think about this with me for a second. Lakewood uh, Church, Joel Osteen's church, has 45,000 in weekly attendance, one church. North Point Community Church, uh, Andy Stanley, 30,000 in weekly attendance. Uh, LifeChurch.tv, uh, 27,000 in weekly attendance. Willow Creek uh, Community with Bill Hybels, uh, uh, pre-pandemic, their church is kind of falling apart after the pandemic, but pre-pandemic they were at 24,000 weekly, and the list goes on. There are over, uh, there are 70 giga churches in America today. You say, I've never heard the term, what's a giga church? A giga church is with 10,000 or more in attendance. There are 1,700 mega churches, that is with 2,000 or more in attendance. Think about that, 1,700 mega churches. California... Now, how do you understand that California, that's like the Bible Belt. They're like the epitome of morality and godliness. California has the greatest number of megachurches in, in America. Compare that to only about 13 megachurches worldwide during the times of the Great Revival. Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody, we know those names. Those were two of them. There were only about 13 during that time, and there was a Great Awakening. And I, and I bring that up to say, how could we have this assessment with so much influence out there? Every year, 4,000 churches close their doors while only 1,000 get started. America, Americans that claim to be Christians back in 1990, according to Pew Research, in uh, 1990, 90% claimed to be Christian. 2001, 81%. 2012, 78%. 2014, 70%. 2015, 70%. 2020, 65%. Today, 63%. Jesus said this, Ye are the light of the world. With more megachurches and gigachurches and more churches in general than any other time in history, I have to ask this question. Are we the light of the world? You know, I mean, that's a statement. It's not like you should be. He says, ye are the light of the world. And I have to ask this question. Are we, though? Are we? Because just looking the last couple of decades in this decline, rapid decline, I have to ask this question. Is there, has there been an influence? Where are, what's going on? To think that the very conscience of America was stirred by just a couple of preachers in different times in history, and there was a, there was a hunger and a readiness uh, for just a few people that would stand up for truth and stand up for, 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 for the Word of God and declare it passionately, and there was such a turning in our nation. I have to ask this question, where, where are those people? 
Because I guarantee this, the Word of God has not lost its power. The Spirit of God has not lost its power. And God has not lost His desire to both see men saved and see people turn to Him and walk with Him. I hope your desires will walk with Him. With such an influence of churches, why is there such a decline in morality, in witnessing and in a belief in God, general belief in God. What is happening in our churches? What's happening with our Christians? By the way, let's bring it home. What is the status of our church? Let's take it home a little further. What is your status? What's going on in your home? How is your heart and your personal walk with God? See, each of us have a natural tendency for spiritual drift. That's natural. We might say it this way, I'm sort of coasting. I heard one person say it this way, if there was ever a time in your life when you were walking closer to the Lord than you are now, then you are backslidden. That's a convicting thought. Uh, a songwriter once said, uh, you know, I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining. How often? Every day. Is that true in your life? Am I passionate about my pursuit of Christ or am I getting distracted by life? Well, you don't understand. I've got, you've got jobs and children to raise and sports for the kids and all this stuff going on, music lessons, and, and those are all good things. But let me just say this. Those should all be complementary to our main purpose, and that is to bring honor and glory to God. I think we're missing something. There's something seriously wrong with the equation. We have a natural tendency to drift. We have a tendency for the fire that's in us to fizzle out. Paul said to Timothy when he was really struggling, he said, Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. Folks, you know I've been given a wonderful gift. If you're saved here today, you've got the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. And let me just say this. The Spirit of God does not want complacency. He does not want spiritual drift. We need to stir it up. Just like the embers of a fire that's about to die out. You, you put that little poker stick in there and you kind of stir that up and the heat kind of reignites and you throw a log and it's ready to go again. And folks, that's what's needed in our own hearts that, that we tend to, 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 to withdraw at times. We tend to, uh, to not cultivate that relationship with the Lord. Uh, remember, the invitation goes like this. Draw nigh to me, God says, and I will draw nigh to you. Folks, he's a gentleman. God does not force his way upon people. He says, I'm waiting for the invite. Now, one day there will be a forcefulness of God, but not today. Today it's an invitation day. Draw an eye to me. Come near to me, and we will have this communion together. We'll have this relationship together, and we'll walk together. And, uh, and that's God's desire for us. And so, so, so may we pray with the psalmist, Wilt thou revive us again? And may this revival last until Christ returns. Stir our hearts. So what is revival? Revival is defined in Webster's Dictionary as a, as a restoration to life, consciousness, vigor, and strength. In the 1828 Noah Webster Dictionary, it says this, a return, recall, or recovery to life from death, or get this now, or apparent death, as in the reviving of a drowning person, to recall, return, or recovery from the state of neglect, apparent death. How many of you have ever walked into a church and say, this place is dead? Now, were there corpses everywhere? No, there's sure an apparent death. 
I've been some places, yeah, it's, it's just like, you know, what's going on? Now, I want to say this. If we're not careful, we'll manufacture life. God said to the, one of the churches in Revelation, he says, you have a name that says life, but you are dead. And I do believe this, one of the great pushes about entertainment and production and all those things that we put in churches, the lights and the music and the, and the, the fog machines and all these things that you see going on in many churches, what is that? I think that's a, 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 a bad attempt to try to create life. Look, look at all that's happening. Look at all the excitement. Surely God must be here. And then, let me remind you of the church in the Laodiceans. A lot was going on, and yet you find God outside knocking at the door of that church, saying, if anyone will hear me, I have a couple questions. God, what were you doing? Jesus, what were you doing outside this church? Because if I read my Bible correctly, a biblical church is to have Christ as the preeminence of all things. He is the the one who sets the direction, and He is the one we worship, and He is the, the focal point of everything that we do. And here in this particular church, He was outside the door knocking, and I just can't help but think, maybe they're too caught up with their programs, and too caught up with their music, and too caught up with their, their all these other things, and it's so noisy that, that, that Jesus is saying, can anybody hear this tapping? And if any of you individuals will open up, I will come in unto Him and sup with Him. We use that verse oftentimes maybe in witnessing to somebody, but that was a letter to a church. And I say, God, may that never be our church. May that never be our heart. I don't want us to be dead, but I also don't want to have fake life. I want to have real life. I want to have Holy Spirit life. I want, I want God to empower us, to revigorate us, to bring us back to where He wants us to be. See, we need not only revival, or, or uh, not only do we need revival from time to time, but we need to recognize personally how it is we drift so easily. You know, each of us is something different. Each of us have a besetting sin. Each of us have something that draws us from the Lord. It's amazing the things, uh, uh, the, the things that will keep us out of church, for example. The things that will draw us from, from, from the command of assembling ourselves together in Hebrews. That's God's desire for us. The Bible tells us, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Now let me ask you, where do we come together to hear the Word of God? Church. And, and our faith is lacking, and our, our fire is lacking, and we, think, we, we, we treat it kind of, you know, uh, optional. Yeah, if I get up in time, I'll make it to church. Are we okay this morning? Who am I talking to today? I'm saying is, and I'm not just saying church is the answer. You can come to church and be cold as ice and dead as a doornail. See, it's not about your placement. It's about the disposition of the heart. It's always been about the heart. God's desire is always your heart. Do you even want Him? That's my question. Are we checking the box? Oh, I made a church today. Are we longing for Him? Like the songwriter said as we sung, Come Thou Found, he said this line, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Folks, that's my testimony. I think it's many of our testimonies. We are prone. If we don't grab a hold of this thing and, and, and have a tenacity about our walk with God, we will drift. We will wander. 
I don't want that. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. And if I, if I get complacent for a minute, well, I tell you what, bad things happen. My mind goes places. My heart goes places. By the way, you can be in ministry and be far away from God. I'll tell you the story because it's kind of comical, but it's also telling on myself. When I first entered into ministry, I was a youth pastor, and I was um, <clears throat> at a wonderful youth group we were developing, and you know, here I am serving the Lord. God's God's put me into the ministry, and what an exciting time! And and, and so early on, and and I remember I um, I also was uh, I was working a secular job. I was a groundskeeper at this retreat center, and, and I remember I was uh, riding that riding lawnmower, and uh, day in and day out, and my mind started drifting. And started thinking about, uh, I wonder what those guys are doing that I used to be in that rock band with. And I started thinking, I should get that band back together. Got one chuckle, thank you. And I started thinking, I'll tell you how far my mind went. I was actually processing through my mind, just walking away from ministry, but not only that, even just leaving my wife and newborn behind. Just all in my mind. There was no phys- like visible temptation out in front of me. That's how far my mind started going through this thing. I was like, wow, that happened fast. This was just only over a couple of weeks. I was like, I can't believe what happened in my, my mind. There are a couple of factors in there. We'll talk about that on our, one of our Sunday nights coming up. But prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. In this psalm, let's get into the text here. In this psalm, uh, the psalmist had a great concern for his people. In the context of this, the people of Israel had gone through a period of difficulty. This was likely uh, uh, right after, um, uh, in the historical context, uh, many scholars believe this was uh, just after a Babylonian exile and the Israelites had come back and they were longing for restoration from their homeland uh, or um, uh, of their homeland and God's and for God's favor, and so that's kind of the minds that they'd come back. Everything was kind of uh, laid desolate and uh, and fallen apart, and they're pleading with God, Lord, we don't want to fall into that again. Now Israel was known to do that, right? They were known to fall out, go after other gods, and get complacent with their Christian or with their with their the walk with God, and God would bring some sort of judgment, many times in exile or or pull them aside. So they're coming back, and the psalmist, he's pleading with God, as I'm pleading uh, today, that, that they would be revived and God would restore them. Notice, um, uh, notice firstly, as we look at this, um, a part of revival and a part of this plea for revival is to remember the pla- excuse me, past blessings. You know, the blessings that God brings our way draw us to want more. I want to know Him. I'm talking God-given blessings. And notice what it says in verse number 1, Lord... Wilt thou have, uh, or, or excuse me, thou hast been favorable unto thy land, and thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob, or what's Jacob's other name? Israel. God had brought back Israel from their captivity. So, so the first thing to remember, as, as the psalmist was remembering for, from them, is to remember God's favor. God's favor. Consider all that God has done for you. He'd been favorable to these people. He had shown mercy and, and brought them back. And think about what God has done for you. The, 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 the blessings of God. I think about I even just look at my family and my children, and, and, uh, and they're happy, and they're healthy, and, they're, and they love their dad. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a joy to come home. They're not like, oh, no, dad's home. You know, uh, they come running to come see. They don't go hide. Um, you know, and I, I have a wonderful wife who supports me and loves me, and I think about our church family. And, but, but let me just say this. Even all that could go away to think about this. 
that because of what Christ did for me, I stand right before a holy God. I can commune with the God of the universe. I have a reservation in the throne room of grace where I can come any day, anytime, any day, and boldly come and bring my request before God. And I can go on and on. I like uh, the, the, the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. The songwriter started listing these blessings. And he said, pardon for sin. A peace that endureth. I can just see him writing down his list of blessings. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And I can just see him as he's getting overwhelmed with all the great things God has done. He just puts down his pen and says, you know, these blessings are all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Folks, we have such a good God. He's been favorable to us. Think about that now. Think about the freedom that, that we've been granted because of Christ. And the last part there, brought the captivity of uh, Jacob or of Israel. You know, think of the victories you've experienced in your life. Think of, think of the broken bad habits. And think of, think of the way that God has led you along the way where you were just a disaster. You ever thought about where you'd be if you weren't saved? Pastor McGovern mentioned that uh, the other night. He's like, oh, you'd probably be in your rock band. I was like, no, I'd probably be dead. The, way, the path I was heading on, I'd probably be dead. Amazing what he has done in my life. Look at verse number two. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Wow. Thou hast covered all their sins. Selah. Now, Selah in the, in the, the Psalms, that's a, a musical term. It's, uh, it carries the idea of, of, of stop and think about that last part. Stop and consider that. And folks, you know what we don't do enough of? We don't make a big enough deal about the fact that you and I have been pardoned of all of our sins. If you're saved here this morning, all of your sins have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You've been cleansed. You stand, you've been declared righteous by God. He's imputed His own righteousness, put it into your account, making you right with Him. So when God looks at you, the Bible says of Jesus Christ, that He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we, here's the exchange, might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When God looks at you, if you've been saved, uh, He sees His very righteousness. Think about that. It's not like, oh, I'm doing better. I'm a gooder person. No, I am the perfect righteous standard of a holy God. Folks, I can't get over that. It was a free gift. There's nothing that I could have done. Nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. And when I, when I called out to him for salvation, that, that his, his blood was counted to my account and washed my sins away. Think about that. I owe him everything. What an amazing God. Hey, let's remember some things. Let's remember some of the blessings of God. Let's remember the victories that he's brought us through. Hey, let's, let's not forget his forgiveness. How he's pardoned us of all of our sin. Think about it, number three, uh, verse three. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Think about, as we remember some things, think about God's forbearance and mercy. Because of what Christ did on the cross for you and me, God was able to turn from all his wrath. The Bible says that God's angry with the wicked every day. And for those who've rejected Jesus Christ, 
The Bible says that the wrath of God abides on them and it's waiting to be poured out on the day of judgment. Let me just say this. If you die a lost sinner, excuse me, in your sins, the wrath of God is going to be poured out for every one of your sins that you've ever committed and you're going to, you're going to be paying for that for all of eternity. But God offers you a free gift. A free gift that many of us can, can share with you and say, listen, here's what it looks like. Here's what God has done. It is a free gift. There's nothing you can do. Many people say, well, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start giving to the poor. I'm going to start doing all these things, and maybe, maybe things will turn around in my life. Let me just say, that is superstition, and that is religion. God says, there's nothing you can do. It's all because of what Jesus did. And all you got to do is re- receive that. For by grace are you saved, through faith. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But think about it, because of what Christ did, God is able to turn away from his fierce anger, and he's taken away all of his wrath. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Think about this, God. Consider this God for a minute who's given us these blessings and he's, he's forgiven us of all of our sins and he's turned away from his wrath and he's brought victories into our lives. Think about that God. Because if you spend time thinking about that, if you spend time thinking about your, your salvation, what he has done in you and for you and through you, it should cause you to want more of him. Romans 2 verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Folks, when you've experienced the goodness of God, you don't want more of the goodness of God. You don't want more of it. Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Now that is a very odd verse. If I wanted to get you to fear me, I would probably try to dominate you in some way. I'd stand up tall, and I'd take an aggressive posture maybe. Maybe I'd threaten you with some things. I'm going to get you to fear me. God says, you know how I'm going to get people to fear me? The all-powerful God, by the way. I'm going to forgive them. Whoa. That turns things around. That's a God I, I want to fear. And that's a God I want to turn to and want to follow. So notice here, we see we've got to remember the past blessings if we're going to have revival. That's going to motivate us. Secondly, we, there must be a request for revival. Look at verse number four. Turn us, O God. Notice verse three, God turned. Now verse four, the request is, Turn us, O God of our salvation. Cause thine anger toward us to cease. He requests, uh, uh, this, this requires repentance. But what's interesting about this verse, the psalmist is saying we need to be turned, but who's the one doing the turning? God. Now that's a very interesting thought. We request to turn, but it's him that does the turning. Turn us, O God. Then he can turn. Turn us, O God. Now here's something that's very important because this takes away the willpower. This takes away all the self-help stuff. Folks, this is an action by faith. 
God, I'm, I'm laying it out. I'm, I'm humbled. I'm, I'm lowly before you. I'm laying myself down as a living sacrifice. I need you to turn this thing around. Folks, that is so consistent with the doctrine of, um, of um, sanctification. I love, I love uh, studying words in the Bible. And I was doing a Greek study of the word that's translated as uh, sanctified. And did you know every time it shows up in the New Testament, it shows up in the passive tense. You say, well, what does that mean? The passive tense means it's something done to you, not something you do. Active tense would be you do it. Passive tense is done to you. Did you know it's God who sanctifies you? Makes you holy, sets you apart? Sometimes we preach on sanctification about, well, you just got to do this and try harder and work harder and all this. No, 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 no. It's about working in conjunction with His Holy Spirit, saying, God, it's you who is changing me. Now, we can resist it. We can grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can quench the Spirit of God, or we can work in cooperation with the Spirit of God. Titus 2.12, teaching us, uh, or for, for it is the grace of God which appeareth unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's the grace of God, the same grace that saves you, teaches you to live godly. Folks, that means we are working in cooperation with God. See, I'm not going to, oh, this week I'm going to act like a Christian. And God's going to be so happy. This week I'm turning things around. Folks, you don't understand that as, as, as Paul wrote to the Galatian believers, he said this, you who have begun in the faith that you made perfect in the flesh, how many of you were saved by works? I did enough things that God considers me saved. None of us. How many of us were saved by faith? If you're saved here today, that's the only way to be saved. But God goes on, but now you're going to be perfected by faith as well. Folks, we have so much preaching about checklists. Do, do this and do this and do this and do this and you're going to be right with God. <laughs> no. No, it's the Holy Spirit of God working in you. Philippians 2.13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So we see here there's a requirement of repentance. Next requires a humble confession and submission. Verse number 5. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw thine anger to all generations? See, what this, this, this is implying is that there was a, an acknowledgement, if you would, of, the, of God being righteous in His anger. We, you have a reason to be right, angry with us, God. We keep turning from you. We keep blaspheming your name. We keep, we keep, as your people, carrying your name, we keep going after the gods. We keep committing spiritual adultery. You have a right to be angry. How do you be angry if you're, don't raise your hand, uh, I don't want to call out anybody, but, but if, you're, if your spouse cheated on you, you'd be pretty upset, right? Here's God looking at his people. I've called you by my name, and you go after these other gods, and God rightly calls it adultery. You cheated on me. And he said, God, are you going to be angry with us forever? It requires confession and submission. Proverbs 28, verse number 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso, whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. See, honest confession, by the way, is not just admitting your sin, listing it out. Honest confession is not even seeing your sin for what it is. Honest confession is seeing your sin from God's perspective. What did your sin do to him? What did your sin cost him? How was God grieved by your sin? 
folks, it starts changing things when you start seeing it like that. I think with, uh, about David in Psalm 51, his psalm of, of, uh, of confession when he uh, um, finally admitted and confessed with his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he said this in Psalm 51, verse number 3 and 4, For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Now think about David. How many people did he sin against? He sinned against Bathsheba. If you're familiar with the story, he saw her bathing naked and he said, Hey, go get her, bring her to me. He gets her pregnant. And then to cover it up, he's like, well, let's, let's, bring, let's bring her husband off the battlefield and let him go, go be with her. So then he'll think it's, it's his child. And, and, uh, and then uh, um, he doesn't do it because he's a more righteous man than David at this point. And, uh, and so what does David do? He sends him to the front line, if you would, of the battle and, uh, and, and basically is responsible for Uriah's death. He kills one of his mighty men. He commits adultery. He sins against his present wife. He sins against his... His people, his soldiers. And yet when he confesses before God, here's what he brings it down to. God, the most important thing, what really matters is that I've sinned against you. Against you I've done this evil. Folks, if we start seeing our sin like that, we'll get away from this idea that we're only sorry because we got caught. We're only sorry because of what, how it makes us look in front of other people. We say, God, I've wronged you. It changes things. Second Timothy two nineteen, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Turn from. Next it requires a desire for revival. Look at verse number six. Wilt thou not revive us again, that the people may rejoice in thee? And get that in thee. I think sometimes we want revival, so we'll rejoice. In thee. See, too many people want heaven, but they don't want God. They want revival, but they don't want Him. I want to be excited, and I want to be alive, and I want all these things to happen, but, but they don't want Him. They don't want to pay the price for revival. And they don't know at once what revival is all about. I like what Leonard Ravenhill said. He said, the only reason we don't have revival is because we're willing to live without it. That's true. Because revival stirs things up. Revival brings about a change. You read about some of the, the revivals in America even uh, during the Great Awakening period. Uh, I, I've read different journals and reports and, and how, how society was very wicked. There was a lot of things going on, so some unethical and unjust things. And uh, one of the things that was very common was even like uh, grocery store owners, they would adjust their scales a little bit. So when you're buying produce, you're actually paying a little bit more because it's registering a little heavier than it really was. And, and uh, liquor stores were running rampant and all these things. And, and, and what, what, what you would find when these revivals would sweep through town is liquor stores would shut down, bars would close. Um, these, these, these grocery store owners would go back and they'd fix everything. And then they'd, I mean, I mean it actually, it, here's, what, here's what happened. When a revival took place, they actually changed they didn't come and spend two minutes at an altar and say, God, I'm so sorry. They go continue living the way they've been living. God did a thorough work in their hearts and lives. The only reason we don't have revival is because we're willing to live without it. Do you want to see God move in your life, in your family, in your church? 
question is how bad do you want to see it? Again, it's rejoicing in Him. That, that people may rejoice in Thee. See, too often we want God to do something so that we can rejoice in our circumstances. So that we can rejoice in, uh, in answered prayer, even. Think about, think about our prayer requests, our typical prayer requests. They're usually very temporal. They're very out here. Compare that to Paul's prayer request. I think about Paul's prayer request for the Colossian believers in Colossians 1, 9 through 11. For this cause, uh, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you may be, get this now, filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. That's what Paul's prayer request was for these believers. Now, is it wrong to pray for illness and to pray for different things like that? No, not at all. Even Paul did that as well. But how much we neglect these real spiritual prayers. Because what's more important, my health or my spiritual condition? The outward man perishes, but the inward man is renewed day by day. He prayed this for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all saints. Cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, and that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to us, word, who believe according to the working of His mighty power. That's a great prayer. Do you desire a spiritual blessing or are you content with just carnal blessings? Can I give you a little secret? Riches will not satisfy. I mean, we can go story after story of celebrities, different people. I think it was Jim Carrey that said, the great theologian Jim Carrey said, Anyone thinks that riches will buy happiness, I wish they could be rich for a week. You know what he's saying? That wasn't it. That wasn't it. Next, it requires the desire to see God move. Look at verse number seven. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant unto us thy salvation. Show us thy mercy. What's that saying? I want to see it. I want to see it. And notice he says, grant us thy salvation. Salvation, oftentimes, especially in the Old Testament, was spoken of typically, would, would, uh, would not spe- be speaking of the way you and I would talk of salvation today, the spiritual salvation. Many times it was, uh, it was praying for the, you know, this, this psalm in particular is praying for the nation, and it speaks of a deliverance from the troubles that they had faced. Uh, that he had saved them, pulled them out of those things, uh, be it national enemies, famine, spiritual condition, all these things. That's the kind of salvation that's often being referenced in the Old Testament. And, uh, and I just want to you know, say with that, you and I, we need a salvation of this kind. Hey, you're, you're saved if you've, been, if, you, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You are saved eternally. But I'll tell you what, in this life, we need some salvation. We need some saving from time to time. We need God to intervene and God to, to help. Here's, here's what it is. We need some salvation from ourselves. 
You know, sometimes we're our own worst enemy. You know, I wouldn't have so many problems if I just would stay out of the way. Who was it? I think it was Abraham Lincoln asked if he was um, concerned about losing the election and if there was anyone that he was really concerned about losing to. He said, yes, there's one man. He says, a man by the name of Lincoln. He says, if I, if I am to lose this election, it will be because of a man named Lincoln. You know what he's saying? I get in my own way. I mess myself up. We need salvation from ourselves. We need salvation from our complacency and our walk with God. We need saving. We need reviving. That's what he's asking. Thirdly, we're going to look at the requirements for revival. Requirements for revival. So what does it take? God gives us the formula. What are the requirements? First of all, and possibly most important, it requires a listening ear. Verse number 8. I will hear what the Lord will speak, for He will speak unto His people. Let me pause there. It requires a listening ear. Many times revival is spoken as this very mystical thing, like we just sit and we wait for it. God, I'm going to wait for you. Or, uh, or, uh, or I'm going to sit here and pray until the proverbial fire comes down from heaven. And, 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 and though those are good things, let me just say this. God will never work His will apart from His Word. How does God speak to you and to me today? God does not show up with a mystical voice. God does not, there's no new revelation. The revelation, the, the, the revelation, the books have been closed, folks. God has given us everything He wants us to have, and He's canonized it into 66 books. We call it the Bible, and He's compiled those for us today that we now have the Bible, we have the Holy Spirit of God, and God says that's what you need. We're always looking for something new and something, you know. Uh, it's amazing how the charismatic movement has taken off, which is all experience-based, and they've departed from any concrete truth. And God will never work a revival. He'll never work His will apart from His Word. That's where He's going to direct, and that's where He's going to guide, and that's where He's going to instruct. It's through His Word. So when we come to the Bible, we say, God, speak, for thy servant heareth. And he says, I will hear the God, uh, uh, what God, the Lord, will speak. Uh, do, when you come to the Bible, are you hearing? Are you listening? Are you reading? Are you attentive? Are you saying, God, I am ready to receive what you have for me? How important that is. You're not going to find God's will apart from God's word. You're not going to get direction. You're not going to get help. You're not going to grow up faith. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Are you attentive to God's Word? Do you hold it dear? Are you willing to act upon it? Or is your mind settled on your own things? I can guarantee you, if you are resisting God's Word, you're resisting God's revival. No, I love God and I like to do these things, but, but listen, if there are things that you've reserved for yourself, you know, but I'm not letting go of that. I'm not moving in this area. Now, let me just say, you know. You know what it is. You're resisting God's revival. Proverbs 28, verse number 9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. That is a heavy verse. John 8, 31 through, um, uh, through 33. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are my disciples indeed. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It requires listening ear. It requires a steadfast walk. Look at the second part of verse number 8, or the last part. 
But let them not turn again to folly. Let them not turn again to folly. You know, the proverb rightly said, you know, as a dog returneth to his vomit, so a man to his folly. We'd love to just go back. I know I got beat up last time, but this time's going to be different. This time's going to be fun. Yeah, sin is fun for a season. Eventually, you've got to pay the bill. We think of the pattern of Israel, how they would, they would go down. They, uh, here's how it often go down. They would be delivered from God and experience revival. In their revival and in their prosperity, they would start to get complacent. And then they'd start kind of looking around and get distracted. Oh, that God looks shiny. Uh, look at what that nation's going after. And they start chasing after the gods of the people around them. And then before long, God gets very displeased with them because of their idolatry. And that their, their, their walk with him was just a facade. It was just a cultural thing that they would do on Sabbath day. But then they would kind of go off and chase after their own gods. And then eventually God would raise up a judge, uh, a, a judgment, sometimes in the form of captivity. And he would carry his people away. And then after a while, they get fed up enough and they're crying out to God for deliverance. And, and God finally hears them and rescues them and brings them back. And he restores them, and they start to experience revival yet again. Folks, don't wait till all the disasters happen. Don't wait till the catastrophes happen. Serve God today. Live in revival today. But that's what they would do. They would go back to their folly, and they would fall into that again. It takes a consistent, steadfast walk. How often that happens in our own lives, these cycles that we go through. Philippians 3, 13 through 16, Paul said this, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm not there yet. But this one thing I do. Can you, by the way, simplify your life down to one thing that you do? This one thing I do, the Apostle Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect. And the word perfect there does not mean sinless. It means mature or complete in your walk with God. Any of us that be perfect, be thus-minded. Have that mindset that you are going to do one thing, forget things behind, uh, look forward to things that are before, press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Uh, Be thus-minded, and if anything, if in anything you be otherwise-minded, God shall reveal it unto you. Nevertheless, where to we have already attained, let us walk the same rule, let us mind the same thing. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if there's anything in your life that does not fall into that, you're otherwise minded, he said, I believe God's going to show you. And folks, I believe God will show you. You don't have to convince me where my hiccups are, where my stumbling blocks are. I know, I know my problems. You know yours. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the word of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Next, it requires a fear of God. Verse number 9. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in the land. It's nigh to them that fear him. Notice, notice the, the progression. His salvation is near those that fear him. So fear brings salvation, which produces glory. Salvation from fear to glory. Think about that now. For talking about the fear of God. Oswald, Oswald Chambers said this, The remarkable, remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. The fear of God. 
Spirit of God is an interesting topic. Some people are like, you know, they kind of tiptoe around it or try to struggle with it. You know, the word there is phobia. The fear of God. Now, if you're lost, let me just say this, be very afraid. <laughs> Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But when you become a child of God, the fear changes. Like, and I want to be careful not to bring in a wrong idea even with your own parents, but like you might have a healthy fear of your parents. I don't want to disappoint. I don't want to let them down. It's kind of like this. The fear of God is, is, a, is, a, is an ever-present awareness that God is watching and judging every one of your actions and motives and has a plan with you. You ever been driving along on the freeway and all of a sudden uh, a specially marked vehicle pulls up behind you? Now, the lights aren't going yet, but instantly you check your speedometer, your hands go to 10 and 2, make sure you're not swerving back and forth. You don't want to give any reason for this guy to pull you over. Now, let me ask you this. Were you breaking the speed limit? Were you, were you doing something wrong? Were you breaking some law that you're now terrified that they're going to catch you? No, I hope, that, I hope you weren't. Um, but all of a sudden, you have an awareness of the law. See, that's living in the fear of God. I know that I have an indwelling Holy Spirit who's always with me. And I don't want to grieve that spirit. I don't want to quench that spirit. I want to walk in his way. And then it requires walking in light of your salvation. Look at verse number 10. I love this. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know what this is? Where does that take place? Where does righteousness and truth come together? And where does, uh, I'm sorry, where does, well, excuse me, where does um, mercy and truth come together? You see, when truth, when we're talking about a, a courtroom or a judgment seat, there's no room for mercy. It's all truth. And there's no room for, um, for peace when righteousness is being executed. But there's one place where all that came together and was on the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about this now. So mercy and truth. If you were going to a courtroom and you say, Here, here's all the evidence against you, you are found guilty, you try pleading for mercy. Let me just say, that's not the place for it. A courtroom is not the place for it. If it, if it enters the courtroom, that is not just. Because justice is an equal balance. That's what that means. But the cross of Christ satisfied the wrath of God, the righteous demand of God, so that it all comes together. It's all brought together there to the degree, I love the, the phrasing there, where righteousness, how many of you are willing to stand before the righteousness of God in your sinful condition? That's terrifying. The only place for righteousness and peace to be kissed, to come together, was at the cross of Jesus Christ. He made it possible. So now I can stand before God with boldness because I have been declared righteous by Him. How awesome. If you and I just consider and keep before us constantly that what we deserve versus what we got. The forgiveness that Christ provided on the cross, we'll never get a cold heart. We've got to keep our salvation always before us. Like the songwriter said, hey, tell me the story again. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. I love to tell the story. More wonderful it seems. The more times we hear it, think about it, you know, uh, to those who know it best. I love that line of the song, to those who know it best. You know what it means? Uh, we, that we love sharing the gospel again. We, we relish the gospel. We are excited about the gospel. We live in the gospel. For us who are saved, it is the power of God. 
How do you stand facing God's righteousness without peace? We wouldn't. You see, you and I, born into sin, collectively we've gathered up all this sin. And if there was never a time where you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, you're going to face the righteousness of God. Revelation reminds us of what it's going to look like. It's called a, a great white throne. And, and at this judgment, Jesus Christ is sitting on this throne, and the Bible says that the books are open, and another book is open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged of the things which were written in the books. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in like a fire. And then hell gave up the dead, uh, de- uh, uh, which were in them, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And let me just say, when you stand before the righteousness of God without experiencing uh, the atoning work of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, the, the propitiation for our sins, the covering, the, the, the satisfying uh, uh, sacrifice that Christ was, that's what you will face. But when you've accepted that, when you've experienced the forgiveness that is in Christ, you can face the righteousness of God because he's made you righteous. What a thought. And the last thing I want to point out, the response of revival. God responds with his character. Look at verse number 11. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. You know what happens when revival hits? It changes things. It changes the community around them. Charles Finney, one of the most recent great revivals we've had in America, it was said that when he'd come to town, the bar owners would preemptively just close down because they knew he'd have no, com- no business that week. When a revival takes place, it changes this righteousness. The, how was it worded? It was um, truth begins to spring up out of the earth. It shows up. And then the righteousness shall come down from heaven. God, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about God descending, if you would, God coming down and empowering and, 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 and working. I know, I know sometimes when we talk about these things, it almost starts to sound a little charismatic. I'm not talking about any kind of hocus-pocus stuff. I'm talking about God empowering his people to do what he's called us to do, to be salt and light in this world, to share his gospel with others, to stand for what's right. Why is America going to hell in a handbasket? Because we've gotten complacent. I say we, Christianity, believers, those who truly know him have just kind of let it go by the wayside and we're just kind of hanging out until Christ comes. Shame on us. God responds with his character. Truth springs up, righteousness comes down. Isn't that what we're looking for? We want to make an impact here on this earth. We want to make an impact here in North Pole, Isleson, and Wainwright, and Fairbanks. We want to see these things happening. We want the power of God to come down, to work in us. And then we, God responds with his blessing. Verse 12, Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good, and our land shall yield her increase, which is good. When God gives that which is good, it's that which is good according to his will. So many times we say, well, Lord, I think you should do this. Or we say, I prayed about it, Lord, here are your three options. And God says, I'm not, you're not even in the same hemisphere of what I'm thinking. We want God's will accomplished. Thy will be done. That should be our greatest desire, what God wants accomplished. And then lastly, we are revived in God's righteousness, purpose, and direction. Verse number 13. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us up in the way of his steps. That's each of us. God's righteousness is going to go before you. 
It's going to pave the way for you. The Bible says this in Psalm 37, uh, 23, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Over and over again, we see this concept of the way that we take, the, the direction. God lays it out before us. He, he plans our steps. What an awesome thought. I don't know about you. I want that. How many of you have made dumb decisions? I've made choices, and I stepped out thinking, oh, I've got this thing figured out, and we just fall. <laughs> Lord, I guess I should have. Uh, I needed you to order those steps. I messed it up. Folks, when you're in revival, when you're walking with God, he orders your steps. What an awesome thought. I'm going to close with this. R.A. Torrey once said this. I have a theory. That there is not a church, chapel, or mission on the earth where you cannot have revival, provided there is a little nucleus of faithful people who will hold on to God until he comes down. First, let a few Christians, there need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. Now, you know how I feel about that phrase, but I want to quote him exact. Um, I got right with God the moment I got saved. What he's talking about here is what I've just unpacked, true repentance, taking your Christian walk serious, uh, consistency in your walk with God. Quit messing around, as he said, with folly, with sin. Quit going that way. A few get thoroughly right with God themselves. That is a prime essential. If that is not done, the rest I'm going to say will come to nothing. Second, let them bind themselves together in prayer groups to pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. Third, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for Him to use uh, to use them as He sees fit in the winning of others to Christ. That is all. This is sure to bring revival to any church or community. I have given this prescription around the world. It has been taken by many churches and many communities, and in no instance has it ever failed, and it cannot fail. R.A. Torrey, the turn of the 20th century. Do you want revival? I do. Folks, the Lord is coming soon. Only one life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. We're going to face him one day. And the Bible says that God is going to have to supernaturally wipe away our tears. What could be so bad about heaven that God has to wipe away our tears? I think we're going to all of a sudden see a perspective that I wasted my life for frivolous things, living in the here and now, living for myself, and completely lost sight of what God has even put me here for. Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Let's go and stand to our feet if we could. Heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. As the music will begin to play here. I want to plead with you this. Uh, you typically ask if the Lord's touched your heart or stirred your heart, you know, come forward and kneel at an old-fashioned altar. If you want to see God work, if you want revival, here's the invitation. Come and hit your knees. Call it to God. God, I want to see you work. I don't want to move. I don't want, to, I don't want to, to play games. I don't want to do anything until I've seen you move in my life. My, my kid's future depends on it. My marriage depends on it. This church depends on it. God, your glory in our world depends on it. The altar's open. I want you to come.